of Obscurity with DJ Pazur and Double A. Hey, Double A, how's it going? All right, Pazur, how's it going today? It's been only five minutes since we talked to each other, but I had to ask. That's that's all right. Yeah, it's good to check in periodically. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Out of Obscurity, and I want to thank you for your contribution to our podcast. Uh, we have a we have a celebrity in the studio today. Hmm. Is the uh, composer the composer for our opening theme song, Batman Falls Down? Okay. And uh, you'll hear it at the beginning of every episode. So thanks a lot for that contribution. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got two picks, two picks for today's episode. Yeah. Uh, the first is yours, mm. Double A, as uh, Dolores Catherino, and the second pick is my own, entitled. Uh, Elemental Themes by mm-hmm. Chrome Canyon from 2012. I see. Uh, we're going to start out with your pick, Double A. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, Dolores Catherina? So uh, I would say uh, just to begin, if we wanted to run down a few uh, little tidbits, uh, she is a uh, artist from Alaska, a multi-instrumentalist uh, who started playing um, on the organ, switched to uh, saxophone, um, also plays a fretless guitar and bass, um, other woodwind, woodwinds uh, such as the flute and clarinet and uh, keyboard instruments in general. Um, was a recent, as of uh, 2018, uh, Rasmussen Foundation Artist Fellowship in uh, Music Composition. I think that uh, came with a um, $18,000 fellowship. Refers to her uh, studio in Alaska as a laboratory, and I would consider uh, a pioneer in polychromatic uh, microtonal music so so she's really on the experimental avant-garde end of the spectrum yeah and i would say if you uh look at words associated with her work at this point that's probably what you will dig up um and using also too on top of that uh instruments that are kind of more on the uh boutique uh, side of the spectrum. Uh, for example, uh, she uses a keyboard instrument called the Tonal Plexus, which I think they're in production is maybe only a hundred or so, based on what I found. You won't find it at your local Best Buy. Not likely, unless, uh, yeah, someone made a mistake in the ordering department. And again, I'm not sure how the price is affected by that scarcity, but uh, I, I did see on a few forums uh, it is rising in demand. People are looking to acquire this instrument. Uh, some of the other ones, too, pretty interesting. Uh, the Microzone U648, it's a 288-key um, hexagonal arrangement. So all of the instruments she uses uh, probably look like something you would uh, use to um, go to the moon rather than uh, maybe make music on. But uh, she seems to uh, get some sounds out of there, which uh, I guess we'll discuss whether or not we believe it is music. Um, I imagine you may have some doubts. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Since mm. you're talking about the instruments themselves, I wonder if you can explain for the listeners your, your views on the difference between an instrument and a controller. Are they so, the same or, uh... Uh, an instrument and a controller, probably to me, uh, would be the, the easiest differentiation is the instrument would probably be closer to something that uh, is 
expressive along multiple different controls or control signals and a controller I think kind of narrows it down to maybe a certain effect or a certain singular um, signal that's being fed into the overall composition so um, if I were looking at an instrument yeah I would just consider it a little bit more um, multi uh, faceted cool cool mm -hmm. So usually when we start out talking about our picks, uh, you'd be uh, describing the, the album, mm -hmm. the album name and when the album was made and so forth. Where, but uh, she uh, doesn't appear to have any albums and maybe doesn't believe in albums. Um, it's just conventional. That is an interesting conjecture. I would say that at this point, uh, she is kind of just throwing her music out there, so to speak, to see what kind of responses she gets. Um, obviously, uh, she's getting um, some coverage and some such things as TED Talks and things of that nature, so um, perhaps there's no pressure to release any sort of commercial album at this point if she's getting enough attention with what she's doing and the way that she's releasing it now. So for example, all of these songs uh, are available as of today. How many tracks was there? There's probably uh, over a dozen tracks on uh, Bandcamp. A couple dozen. Yeah. And where can, where can a, a curious listener find them? So yes, uh, download uh, the uh, files or stream them. You don't have to, but I always uh, recommend supporting the artist as best you can um, at Bandcamp. You can look her up by her name. Her entire discography is available for, I believe, $7.15. That was the grand total I paid, yeah. Hey, you, you support the artist. Way to go, mister. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, that uh, if you don't have an album available and you're not, she doesn't have a lot streaming on YouTube in terms of just the music itself, her mm. talks and her informational mm -hmm. videos are there, but you know, if you want to listen to her music, uh, it's, it's almost kind of hard to find. It, it's, it can be. I mean, I, I came across her music just with the algorithm running. Um, it became a recommendation, and then I did a little bit more digging in. So I think I, I found perhaps uh, up to eight or so of her recordings, which was interesting for me because I wanted to specifically evaluate whether her performances on her videos um, matched her recordings on Bandcamp and how uh, similarly they were executed, whether or not, as we might see later, she's improvising a lot more or if she is actually following some sort of a composition that she's come up with so is it live, live differences between live performance and recording work that's uh, yeah that's mm -hmm. what you do for serious music i guess yeah yeah People have jobs analyzing that. Huh? Indeed, indeed. But uh, I didn't go too in-depth on that comparison uh, for this particular program, but that was a point of interest while I was uh, preparing for this. So. Sure, sure. You say, you say her, her music came up on your recommended listens. Was that on YouTube? Or? Yes, correct, on, on YouTube, as uh, probably many people are exposed to music these days uh, through some sort of uh, video streaming or music streaming service. Do you see it as an advantage that maybe without trying to make a whole lot of money or being on a fellowship, for example, to, to make music that maybe you're, uh, you're in it just for pure experimentation? And, uh, is that an advantage in composition? In composition, I, obviously, I would say it's uh, very liberating. I think most of the pressure is off uh, at that point. And also, uh, to kind of uh, go along with that would be the fact that she, in essence, is kind of making up her own style of music as well. So how can you do it wrong? You know, there's really no risk necessarily. A lot of 
other people say they're trying to make up their own style, mm. but you actually do it to the extent that she is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's really pioneering something something different. I mean, she calls it uh, possibly the music of the future, which I think if anybody else were to say that, I would say it's pretent- pretentious nonsense. Yeah, and I thought when I heard that, that was a mistake. Yeah, I thought that, that uh, I would not have done that if I were her. I think she was really kind of uh, setting herself up for some pushback there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody needs to toot their own horn and get some attention. If you're not trying to make money, you should at least uh, get recognition for being an innovator or maybe even the the progenitor of a, of a completely new style and so forth. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why why you chose her as your first pick as co-host of Out of Obscurity. Sure. So uh, kind of the uh, different areas I was looking at when I selected this one. So, so as far as obscurity goes, I think that's definitely an easy sell as far as that goes because, uh, yeah, not... She, she is not she is not on any uh, music review site that I have, I have searched for. Unless, and I think this is how the algorithm tied me into it, I was uh, in general looking for microtonal music. So out of that general search criteria, eventually after maybe 30 or so videos, I did get fed into her stream of sorts. Um, but the questions that I came up with when I did uh, find her that I'm still finding interesting to this day is, uh, does the idea of new music exist? Um, where is there still room to explore in this arena? Um, what does she mean by uh, using tonal languages versus um, uh, different uh, scale, uh, different scales, um, and tunings, and uh, how can I mean she raises this question, but I'm not quite sure if she answers it or even gets us along the path of answering it. Is how can we transition from a modal system into a polychromatic system as a whole, as a music industry, if you wanted to. So if you haven't noticed so far, this episode is going to be rather academic, and uh, scholars of music may find it, you know, below their level. Whereas the average listener is probably we're probably going to be talking over some people's heads. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to ask, because yeah, definitely um, I'll have to be straightforward. I mean, I I definitely enjoy experimenting with music, but uh, I did not study um, music as a major in any of my academic settings. So this is purely uh, from a hobbyist standpoint. So someone someone with classical training or a lot of technical training is going to be yelling at their speakers, saying, "You fools! You don't know what you're talking about." Right. Like right. This and is going to happen. We're going to have to. This is not intended for professional musicians to listen to, perhaps. Just not necessarily. Yeah. I don't want to step on any toes out there. So yeah. So in that in that vein, can you explain to me the difference between what she means by polychromatic and microtonal? So I think where the main difference comes in between polychromatic and microtonal is in the notation itself. Um, microtonal music has a history of using a lot of uh, confusing accidental symbols um, in the most basic sense sharps and flats to uh, compose their music um, but it goes well beyond sharps and flats there's like double flats and uh, you know all kinds of strange symbols used to represent uh, how many cents of tuning off of a certain popular note value in her term she notes that these uh, these make the if, if you look at sheet music mm-hmm. for tonal music it's very very cluttered mm-hmm. um, there, there are endless variations mm-hmm. and there's no standard for how to um, correct do notation yeah and what her uh, her innovation is the polychromatic notation it's a notation system mm-hmm. understanding indeed where she's being uh, 
innovative and also in how to put the music on sheet music and that mm-hmm. just means colors basically right? it's basically and then and, and again that's yeah the way that uh, she i think uh, brought it up in one of her presentational videos uh, to visualize it is a combination of three dimensions of uh, the note name the pitch depth or the color that's where the color comes in and i guess time as it goes along in the uh, progression there so those would be the three dimensions she's looking at so the pitch depth is uh, i guess uh, pretty much synonymous maybe with the pitch color um, she does make a mention, too, because you might say to yourself, well, what about us, uh, not me in particular, but colorblind people? She says you can substitute with uh, browns and grays if you are colorblind. So I, that, it was interesting that she even made, I guess, some sort of uh, nut tip of her hat to those folks who still want to use this system but are colorblind. Very accommodating. Um, she, un- says this is, uh, mm-hmm. she says this is more intuitive than any other system, and I guess I believe that. At first, when I heard it, I thought, well, I'm, going, I'm going to play a, a blue C or a, mm-hmm. a red red F in those things, or a pink or a pink G or something mm-hmm. like that. And I thought, this is ridiculous. That that's just sounds like pretentious, but it, is, it does seem to serve a practical purpose. Right, and, and when I first was introduced to the system, too, I thought it was some way of maybe formalizing uh, a case of synesthesia or something of that nature, but uh, no, she, I guess, is actually trying to codify um, the different... Uh, slight variations in pitch within a piece so that you can actually reproduce uh, something that you've come up with for other musicians to enjoy without it being completely improvisational. Um, One of the other things that she did as kind of a shorthand is she also uses kind of a hybrid uh, tab notation along with the uh, polychromatic notation, which basically just combines um, chord structures with the different colors as well, if you're familiar with uh, tab writing. For musical notation, I think this is this is getting already more technical than I can handle. Okay, okay. Well, moving along. <laughs> it's important that you mention that there are three dimensions to it. Uh, yeah. Is, uh, on one of her YouTube videos outside of the TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And if this is all just sounding like gobbledygook, I recommend the the TED Talk where she explains it all very, very concisely and clearly. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair representation of what she's trying to accomplish. Um, however, I think, again, as I was kind of uh, alluding to at the beginning, she may open up more questions than she is able to effectively answer at this point. Well, that's that's the job of a provocateur on the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. To, uh, pose questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, others, let others come to their own answers, because hers, hers aren't necessarily going to be authoritative. Mm-hmm. But to put a uh, to put a popular culture um, summarization of what we're talking about, uh, I think uh, you could consider this uh, what all all the variations and uh, polychromatic notation versus microtonal music. It all sounds it it it's all seems a bit like three D chess mm-hmm. in terms of just you know breaking breaking into different planes and dimensions that you hadn't considered when you listen to music normally. Yeah, and I think uh, if, if someone is going from simply listening to um, pop hits or music that is um, even obscure but follows uh, a more conventional system, it can at least bring a level of enjoyment when you do notice uh, maybe 
some sounds or some pitches that don't seem quite right in the music that you're already enjoying. I think it does uh, do well to highlight that. So to, to take from her TED talk, mm-hmm. okay, so the example that she used are the bird songs and a siren. Mm-hmm. And notice, noticing that the microtonality is the, the tones between what we normally consider the right notes, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. in a song. And that's where the pitch color is. So pitch color and microtonality are almost synonymous, would you say? Or well, I would say, again, uh, the, the best I could do from, from the beginning is to say that... Uh, Polychromatic is a subset of microtonal, and it's uh, systematized um, so that you can recreate uh, those tones, notes, or frequencies in a more uh, achievable manner, as opposed to being bombarded with uh, a bunch of hieroglyphic-looking notation. So, right, right. yeah, which is which would make it even more confusing. We mm-hmm. understand that this is a very confusing thing, and she's trying to make it intuitive and accessible which is you know, kudos, kudos to her for that. Certainly, certainly. So um, one of the things that, uh, I don't know if this introduces more concepts than would be useful, but is uh, considering uh, the system that we currently use as uh, even temperament, which essentially um, all of the pitches are equally split up along a, a tonal continuum. Whereas she has no divisions, no distinct divisions between all of these pitch notes. Modal, mm-hmm. modal is what she calls the basic mm-hmm. fundamental. All Western music basically is based on that. And obviously, for the last two hundred years, so she's definitely got an uphill battle to try to uh, break us out of this habit. That's right. That's right. Everybody thinks they know how to listen to music and can define what is and is not music. Mm-hmm. I can imagine some people listening to her her works would say, "Yeah, it's maybe not music." Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. To 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 put it into uh, terms of numbers too, if this helps uh, some of the listeners, um, in the uh, system with even temperament, often there are only uh, twelve uh, semitones per octave. So, essentially, what she does is splits that into up to one hundred and six discrete tones in her music, which, again, it would be hard-pressed to get you to recognize each one of those incremental changes in between. But uh, then... She says the human ear can recognize it. So to put mm-hmm. it into other, other terms, that is the soul feature, right? Yes. You go from one end to the other, she's got 106 tones. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, yeah, the standard. Which sounds pretty astronomically more complex. Yeah, and I guess uh, some people, again, are going to say, why, why is it necessary and uh, what purpose could that serve? And I think she's also asking that question, but hopefully in a more uh, thoughtful way than just why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she does, absolutely. And I mm. think more so than, and I think where she goes a little bit off uh, astray, in my view, more so than even saying this might be the music of the future, which gives, you know, gives an idea of you know where things might be headed or some hope even for new innovate, innovative compositions and so forth when she starts using terms like uh, the quote-unquote echoing her here the psychoacoustic effects mm-hmm. of these microtones mm-hmm. or when you listen for the quote-unquote ghost notes and the purpose of it might be to create quote new harmonics mm-hmm. uh, that we can hear but not measure right and that all sounds 
like uh, maybe maybe very exciting to some people, but some, to the average person, I think I don't know. Something nice, definitely. So to to address those terms that yeah you introduced there. So yeah, the psychoacoustics, uh, I guess, is is trying to affect. Uh, different thoughts or feelings by simply uh, playing um, different uh, intervals of notes, experimenting with that, which, I mean, if she's going obviously beyond, you know, the major chords are happy and minor chords are sad, then I guess that can be good. But uh, if it really does have a psychological effect, it can be dangerous, I would assume, if it really does, and she doesn't know what she's doing. Correct. <laughs> so in in some ways I, I'm, I can appreciate it, in other ways if it really does have these uh, psychoacoustic effects, then uh, I think she better figure out what she's doing. <laughs> Um, and in reference to uh, ghost notes, if, if there's some time for that, um, I thought about that a moment, and again, I guess these are the sort of things that can create those uh, psychoacoustic effects, these ghost notes. Um, I, I relate it to, if, if anyone's familiar out there with perhaps maybe the binaural tones, where you play two different frequencies on either side of the ear, and the difference between those suggests kind of a middle frequency. I think some of that might be going on with these ghost notes, but I haven't really dug into her uh, terminology there as much. But that's as close as I can actually equate it to something that I think exists. <laughs> um, Glad she's not just making it up for one TED Talk. Yeah, so, and again, uh, I think... Uh, what you were saying too uh, about playing frequencies that the the body or the mind can react to but are not really audible um, I think she she even admits that even if she could do that the the current recording uh, formats and playback devices aren't even equipped to to really fully take advantage of what she's trying to accomplish there so extremely avant-garde I think again she's kind of um, made this own little world of her own where it's impossible to be wrong with what she's doing there's no one it's hard to be critical because it's like you, you can't even tell necessarily what's going on at this point with what she's doing to put it in terms of uh, reviewing music we don't know what the aesthetic is you mm. know, what, what constitutes yeah. good microtonal music versus bad mm. or interesting and not interesting it should all be interesting to someone who's at least interested in the concept mm-hmm no, I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, that's a that's a fair way to uh, to judge the music. Well, I think we, we inevitably do so even if we're not conscious of doing it. When most people listen to music and say, wow, that's great, or I hate this, hmm. they're, uh, they're basing it on an aesthetic of, oftentimes I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or disagree, that I think you generally have a point of reference. Mm-hmm. Like, I like this music, and how does this music that I'm listening to that is new that I haven't heard before, how does that compare to it? Mm-hmm. And if you're, and for microtonal music, I think there's there's no frame of reference. Yeah, they... to say what else have you heard? <laughs> yeah, and I, I have heard. Um... Again, during my uh, initial search for microtonal music, uh, ones that I would fit into, like a, either a jazz or an electronic general genre, which have been pretty enjoyable, but uh, the polychromaticism, if our microtonalism um, that that is mixed in there, is kind of just a kind of like a a, a passing effect that they use to introduce the change into a new section in the song, and then they just go back to the same modal kind of compositional elements. So it's, it's kind of just been used in other um, music creation as, again, not gimmicky, I wouldn't say necessarily, but just as a, we're moving into another section. Transitional. 
like a like a bridge. Yeah, bridge bridge more moving into. Yeah. And on that point, on that point, I want to go to two specific tracks that are on the Bandcamp mm-hmm. discography. Okay. On or for her, which are the bridge compositions, as she calls them, in fact, mm-hmm. exactly, which are the two tracks that are called Toward the Continuum. Yes. And she says that shows the divergence toward microtonal scales mm-hmm. um, from the modal, the modal mode of, uh, of music. And I think those are, if you're, if you're wondering where to start, where do you, where do you tow the waters of microtonality? I think those are good examples to see, to hear just what, uh, what we mean by the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So start start with toward the continuum one and two. No, uh, I think uh, yeah, that's a good place to start. Certainly not just because that was the plan all along uh, when we were discussing this, but also uh, I think when I was just listening to them on a surface level, they seemed like the pieces that seem most recognizably to be melodic um, throughout the recording, um, even on the uh, the second iteration, as she calls it. Uh, she did try to I don't know if she successfully did this introduced rhythm elements which uh, I didn't introduce in our previous section but she said specifically that while she was composing at this stage of the process that she would be f- primarily focusing on non-rhythmic or melodic compositions because either it's not ready yet or she's still defining what that means in this uh, system of writing music so that was definitely a point I wanted to touch on because I think I, went, I was wondering if it was a, a deliberate choice it clearly is that mm-hmm. whether she thought that uh, rhythm would be a distraction from the new new harmonics that she's trying to create, and so that there's only one one track of the of her 19 available on Bandcamp that actually has any kind of percussive rhythm that we can discern. The rest of the songs are kind of uh, I would not even call them ambient. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a kind of a new agey feel to them. Certainly. Certainly. Just from my own experience as a hobbyist in music, I would say that uh, to me, if I had no frame of reference as to what this person was trying to accomplish with their music, I would say it's almost like someone who found a new instrument and wants to see what it can do and continues to just uh, make something out of it for up to maybe 13 minutes, I think, are some of her longer tracks. And it's just kind of not necessarily new. I, I know I saw that in some of the notes. There seems to be a little bit more deliberation than noodling, but uh, certainly just kind of primitive, I would almost say, in her, her approach and trying to figure out uh, how these uh, different notes can go together. I mean, a lot of people, you know, really enjoy seeing what the, what a, a master of their virtuoso of their instrument can do. Mm-hmm. By contrast, uh, that's the other the other possibility. I don't get the impression that uh, that that's what uh, Ms. Catherine was doing. By any, by any means, I do see it as more of a similar kind of thing as I note here that, that maybe some music is more of an academic exercise or a reference catalog of sounds. Right, maybe a reference catalog of sounds would be a fair uh, assessment. Um, so putting it in the, the context of uh, where this is in the process, so a lot of these tracks I think are from, if I remember correctly, about seven years ago, getting closer to, you know, almost a decade now. So I'm wondering, you know, since she just got this um, fellowship in 2018 and things of this nature, how has uh, the composition evolved from that? Has it, or is it continuing to be on this level of reference sound and uh, still exploring this musical space, this canvas that she has, I guess, found. 
she's definitely painting with sounds and uh, mm-hmm. I wonder where do you do you have an idea how you would answer that question where do you think the the progress the progress in her compositions would go um if I were to guess at it I would think that um, she would have to begin going into more melodic or harmonic things uh, she in her t- studio tour which I'm trying to remember um, how long ago that was she did have two um, relatively new instruments I think within the last couple of years uh, one was the uh, Hawken continuum keyboard and the Rolly Seaboard um, which if she implemented those two instruments on top of the other instruments she had there is a lot of potential to add I would think a little more harmony and a little more melody in with those pieces but I could be entirely wrong and maybe it's just an incompatible concept with what she's doing but uh, the fact that she has those instruments in her um, arsenal of uh, music equipment, I would think that she would be able to implement them into her compositional work at some point. And I don't know how many years it would take, again, if this is something where in the next five years, if she's still making the same sounds, the same reference material, if all interest in this sort of field will completely fizzle out. But I think it's still at um, a stage where people are obviously wanting to invest in it and see where it's going to go. I think I think your point about that I hadn't considered that this is a, what she has right now on Bandcamp is basically all recorded on one instrument. Mm-hmm. It, like any you know piece, or it, it gets more interesting when you add more instruments, but it, it's, I think, hard to find other other instruments, whether be they acoustic or more likely electronic, that have the, the precision to get exactly the tone that you want is mm-hmm. probably going to be difficult, maybe the constraining factor there. Indeed. So, And, and her way of uh, composing seems to be uh, a way of uh, slowly stacking notes on top of each other into a complex chord until it gets almost indiscernible amongst you know anything else, and then she just releases it. It's almost like a kind of a spacey accordion sound with like a a reverb or a delay that kind of releases and makes an echo at the end. A way to put it. I, a, hmm. a, you know, again, I don't mean to be disparaging necessarily, <laughs> but it, it's a little bit muddy. Ah, okay. I, I have trouble. You, you mentioned that there being more harmonies than there already are. I think it's already pushing for new harmonics, and I can see that as it, it is an interesting experiment, like what, what happens if I push all these buttons at the same time sort mm. of thing, mm-hmm. and I have difficulty, I have great difficulty differentiating between the tracks as they stand. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I, I, when I sat down to listen to this back to back, as opposed to when I normally would listen to her music, which was maybe isolated tracks, and maybe while I wanted to do some perhaps meditation or something of that other nature, it it seemed to fit in really well, but if you sat down for about an hour to listen to these songs back to back, you might be um, very uh, <laughs> tempted to look at your screen and say, "Is this is this a new song? Did the, the track end? What's going on here?" But uh, yeah, it's the case with a lot of experimental music and anything that plays with dynamics, mm-hmm. it's a quiet spot. Yeah, and uh, I don't, I don't blame or you know criticize for that. Well, and it reminds me of uh, perhaps those live programs where you know perhaps you're the new person showing up and in that moment of silence you begin to clap and everyone else looks at you and says oh it's not over what are you doing you're ruining the show <laughs> that awkward moment as they mm-hmm. say um, 
what else do you have to say about the music itself? Um, well, and again, I'm bordering on the level of perhaps crassness too, so we'll just uh, let out as much as we can. I, I think that, uh, that it works a lot with uh, tension and release. I think that's absolutely fine to work with that. You get a feeling of uh, building the tension, releasing it, and then resetting up another stack of sounds until it almost falls down. So I think I get that a lot, not quite in waves maybe, but I'm thinking of maybe um, a Jenga tower and you're pulling up little Jenga pieces and then... Let's bring the metaphors. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm seeing here. Um, some some of the sounds almost sound like a ridiculous um, cartoonish marching. You know, you can almost envision like a, a goofy little spacey mime looking guy just kind of frolicking around with a little flower on his hands or something. I don't know. Conditions we have, yes. Yeah. Results may vary. But it's but it's but it definitely has kind of like a marching sort of feel to it. Some of these spots, um, I would say in uh, Slipstream, uh, around a minute 45, I kind of get that. I kind of get that sense again. Uh, in Nascent, I think there's another one. Praxis. It's interesting that you, you say it sound, seems to be like marching after I've just said there's mm. no discernible rhythm to it. So that would be the, the most rhythmic music of all is marching. Right, yeah, most rhythmic music, but, but the these elements, because uh, it's almost like uh, the only part you can hold on to in these almost sprawling compositions, there's just a short moment of that going on, and then it's just back to the other things. It's like you almost saw something coming together, and then it kind of washes away into this kind of, yeah, undiscernible plane of sound. So. I wouldn't want to call it a miasma, but I think yeah, what, the, what I think of the average listener who's just you know sitting down and trying is is going to be grasping at straws for something to to hold on to as this is music, this is not just sound coming at me randomly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that's going to be the the most challenging part for people is to 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 see this as music at this point in uh, the process of her composition. And maybe just to enjoy the experience of what she's trying to accomplish. Uh, and I don't know if it's necessary to uh, listen to that TED Talk or some of these other preparatory um, lectures before um, diving into her music. Or if you just come across it randomly like I did and maybe use it for the specific pur- purpose of meditation or just thoughtfulness in general, um, if that might help. Yeah, I want to be clear that I, I don't mean to say that like much experimental music experiments with dissonance Mm. this is noisy by any means Mm -hmm. I don't think this is any way uh, like it's abrasive or anything like that it's not noisy music yeah I don't think it's intended to uh, make people run in in terror or you know have any sort of negative effect of that nature Um, so some of the questions I do get what what music is for the Mm -hmm. purpose of listening I think that, uh, that gets into yeah. assumptions that we don't necessarily need to make not at this point in the process yeah and, and if she hasn't made something uh evident by by what she said about her music then i probably would say that you're just filling in your own thoughts which if we are going back to the idea that this is like a laboratory and she's experimenting then i would encourage her if i could talk to her to perhaps take in some data on people listening to your music and see what effect it's having and then go back into your laboratory and do you know, whatever else, and then continue that process and iteration until you get some sort of uh, consistency, a 
amongst that because right now I, I'm having a hard time knowing if after she does all of these very thoughtful uh, compositions if she is actually taking in a lot of feedback as to what, what it's accomplishing with the listener I, I don't know I have no idea if that's going on um, so hey, one, one I, mm-hmm. I have a vision I have a vision that I like to uh, please and that is that like uh, whether it was true or not Prince had a reputation only listening to his own music mm. and uh, I wonder if, if uh, Ms. Catherino was only listening to her own compositions what she thinks of them herself right. often and which, how she interprets them herself yeah and that uh, sort of uh, insular approach I think is very dangerous especially when you're already dealing with something that almost nobody can touch you know I would say no one can really criticize with any authority. So I'm left with some other questions too, which is kind of, are the hands and feet the best way of playing this type of music? You know, are, is our um, tools for even approaching this type of music best accomplished with the traditional methods of interacting with these controllers? She did mention one other controller she wanted to experiment with, which uh, dealt more with hand gestures in a uh, kind of almost convex or concave rather um, controller. So this is something I would call a controller. Um, Not a Thurman, but yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that. I was surprised that she didn't uh, want to play around more with something of that nature too. Although um, from the instruments that she has played before, I guess it would be somewhat outside because it's a bowed bowed instrument and she seems to do more with uh, um, using a keyboard or plucked instruments. Um, One of the other things too, and I guess, and this is where the crassness comes in again, is this not just uh, uh, turning the knob to 11 too. On the creativity scale, I guess. What would the would it, would it just be volume then, or would it, would it be experimentation or awesomeness? Well, yeah, yeah, all those things come into play. But uh, I guess boiling it down, it would just be how many divisions of the octave are required for your music to be legitimate, you know, for what you're accomplishing to be of worth. So that's where I'm still kind of, I'm not sure about her work, but I thought it was important to at least uh, get her information out there. And then if, if anyone in her circle hears this, maybe put some pressure on her to release some of her current recordings or, or show what she's uh, accomplished lately. Not, not a direct challenge, but just curiosity. Well, not unlike, not unlike popular music. There are people that are waiting for the new, the new releases. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with bated breath that's, uh, that's good to hear good to know I want to, to sum up and say that overall I would say that this is uh, very much an example of music that comes with a listening instruction manual mm. okay that, uh, that in itself is going to be a challenge for most people that's fair to say and uh, just a few more things that she compares she compares her uh, microtonality to uh, the difference between a, a black and white versus okay. color TV yeah so, yeah Standard definition versus high definition. Right. Or even silent films with a musical soundtrack versus talkies. Yeah. You could go on and on with with the metaphors. Sure, yeah, and the metaphors can be helpful, but I think it's useful at this point to throw as many out there as possible, because, again, anything that can get somebody a foothold into listening to this and maybe contributing their own thoughts uh, and maybe their own compositions, if someone else just wants to give give this thing a try, then I encourage it, because I think uh, she should not be 
the only person doing this. There should be more uh, um, people experimenting with this. Um, one of her more uh, <laughs> convoluted answers, too, was uh, if I had to tell someone uh, what I'm trying to do here, I'm trying to think of what the tonal language of an interstellar being would sound like. And, I'm like, and that's, again, where I'm like, okay. And then she uh, prefaces that with that uh, clip from uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So, and again, I, I guess, I guess, but for me, that's like, we, we, we don't know so much about that. that it, it doesn't help me at all, unfortunately. It sounds cool, but... Explaining, explaining where, you're in for, in, where your inspiration comes from is good. Mm-hmm. And also saying things that would appeal would be your first, your first uh, way to get into something, or basically your first impetus to pl- press play on Bandcamp or YouTube. Yeah. Um, any which way you can is important to, to do that. Sure. And I think that the comparison, the comparison with say black and white versus color TV, mm. the appeal there. If, yeah. If you're just watching black and white, or if you're just listening to music with a modal scale, mm-hmm. you're really missing out. Yeah, and it. it so that's a, to me it also brings back the other ideas. I'm surprised she didn't do this more off, uh, more in her, in her talks too. Is all the different uh, speaker arrangements that have existed, all the different hi-fi systems for audio files that have existed over the years. You know, I'm surprised she didn't make those kind of parallels because that seems to be a little bit more close to what she's doing here but uh, maybe we're just living in a television type age oh absolutely I think uh, sticking with the audio files is, is where she's going to get a lot more traction mm-hmm. than someone who watches movie or movies or TV get the audio files on board and then you've got something yeah how many people are there like that? It's probably a small sliver of the population. Yeah, and again, maybe if you just talk to me and a number of years down the road and you ask me what I think of her, I'll say, who? who? I might completely forget about her. But uh, over the last maybe... Yeah, uh, maybe over the last six months or so, I've been enjoying the thought of it, at least. All right, well, cool. Um, I want to close unless you have other other thoughts close with my, my rating as I always do even though there's yeah. no album to rate it's uh yeah well I mean you, we can just call this an album I suppose is, is fair enough so out of 10 out of 10 points I, uh, there are two points on my scale where listening to a, a certain kind of music requires an entirely different aesthetic to know whether you like it or not hmm. which is what my subjective scale is based on okay so out of 10 points I would either give it a 6.5 which is to say I really need to reevaluate how I listen to music after listening to this, and mm. so I appreciate it. Or I would say a 4.5, which is I'm saying that she's really trying to do something new and different and experimental, and I just don't get it, or I think it doesn't quite work. Mm. So I'm on the fence whether I you know, go above or below 5, where 5 is the point of I would prefer. I'm completely indifferent to it at 5, and above 5 is I prefer it to silence, and below 5 is I'd rather yeah okay okay so yeah how about you um so rather than i guess putting in a point system which i guess is easiest for people to maybe understand is i i I try to break it down into different what i would consider musical elements and how well she pulls it off like almost a yes or no um so the first one would be uh, composition is are the pieces enjoyable or at least interesting um enjoyable i think i I would put it at you know maybe um 
interesting, I would say yes. I think there's some interesting things going on there. The next one I would put uh, is is the kind of the element of musicianship. Uh, are the pieces executed in a professional manner? And this is where I have a little bit of difficulty here. I have seen her perform um, the fretless uh, guitar, so I know she's very talented. I've seen her do some really good things, but there are some things that she does in her playing which almost sounds like uh, accidental stutters and are kind of still in there. So I have a really hard time saying that those were intentional, but uh, you, you really, after only listening maybe four or five times, do those things maybe stand out uh, more. So musicianship, I would say pretty good, pretty good. Record Recording quality, um, are the uh, files themselves um, done at a level that is, you know, distracting? Is there, you know, unintentional pops and clicks and stuff in there? I think the recording quality is just fine, you know. It's not amazing. Um, you definitely can hear what I think she's trying to accomplish with the tones. I don't think there's any, you know, things that are overblown or it's overproduced or anything of that nature. Um, the mix, and this kind of gets more into the mix, is, is how well is it produced in the recording so uh, this thing is seeming to be mostly just one track so I don't think there was much mixing involved so I have to give her a pass on that simply for the fact that I'm guessing a lot of this is a single track sort of deal things don't seem to be mixed inappropriately and the very end I guess is is kind of just the wild card of style is is this something I could consider art and I would say it's very closely approaching it I don't know if it's there yet I'm not ready to, to put my final vote on that art versus not art yeah binary mm. <laughs> well I think that's all we have for her we're gonna transition to our my pick in just a moment with the elemental themes by Chrome Canyon. So and by ways of transition to, to my pick, I'd like to get your thoughts on synthesizer music in general, which we talked about in our obscurity quiz. Okay. And uh, why does it get such a bad rap? Um, it takes it seriously. Well, for me, uh, I'll relate it back to uh, when I was younger and first kind of introduced, uh, pardon me, to synthesizer music. Um, it just sounded fake, you know, in, in the sense that uh, this is something not to be taken seriously. This is this is a toy. Um, so I think... Do you think there's a problem with the name synthesizer, that it's not real, it's the synthetic music? Um, it, it wasn't even with the name of it, I don't think. I think, uh, for me, at least, uh, growing up uh, in the 80s, if I have to age myself, um, listening to synthesizers, some of the synthesizer stuff from earlier decades uh, sounded to me like it was just too chintzy and too goofy. Some better than others, obviously, and some just epically great that I maybe got exposed to later on and found out that they were from an earlier time. But and I also think too, there's a, there's a significant problem with uh, synthesizers of uh, not necessarily lower quality, but of a particular taste. I'll say not aging well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's I agree with that. Uh, things things sounding dated. That's the mm. worst thing you can say about electronic music. Mm -hmm. That it sounds, you know, maybe it was cool when it first came out, and now it just sounds like somebody on their two dollar Casio. Yeah, um, if if you want to put it for, I don't think any people listening to this necessarily will care for auto-tune stuff, but auto-tune stuff, where's all the auto-tune stuff these days? Does anyone care? I, I don't care. 
<laughs> not my not my thing. Not my. Not, not, it never really was my thing, but uh, you know, it came and gone, and I I think that uh, sometimes the synthesizer um, new features or new sounds are kind of like that auto tune thing. It's just a passing, and then well, I mean, trends mm-hmm. and phases and gimmicks, I guess, are mm-hmm. all yeah, ephemeral and so forth. But I think. Uh, there's a certain style to most synthesizer music that endures that is, uh, frankly, science fiction. Oh. And, uh, if it weren't for science fiction, I think, yeah, synthesizer music would be in a very uh, uh, dismal state this day and age, certainly. So, I mean, it has the ability to conjure, conjure the fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think very few other kinds of music do. Yeah. Even if it's a solo synthesizer. And, you know, the, sometimes the cheesiness is part of the point where you can, you know, Right. Be nostalgic about something. Right, and I was just going to say there are some artists that work really well with nostalgia. Like they they uh, can bring you right back either to that time or use uh, things in a, such a way that mixes the old and new in a in a, in a f- form that just fits better. That seems like it was just waiting to be used with whatever came out next, as far as the technology goes. But then, then again, we've run into the problem that there, for some things, for certain sci-fi movies, that there is no, there is no nostalgia for something that everyone agrees was terrible. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, definitely. Uh, if if you look at the history of uh, some of the what could be considered uh, synthesizer music, there's some stuff that will probably never come back. Yeah, that uh, I'm trying to think of one right now where they were trying to create a polyrhythm, which I guess they were doing it out of um, voltage pulses, so it was technically a synthesizer, but it, it in no way resembled anything that someone would want to listen to beyond just, oh, you were able to do that. That's great. Sure, sure. The early pioneers of electronic music were truly experimental, and what, what anyone would actually want to listen to today is a pretty short list. Mm-hmm. Another issue that we touched on with, uh, with, with, with Ms. Catherino's music was, uh, what does one quote-unquote do to this kind of music? Does it have a specific purpose? Say, for most, is it dance music, or is it a, is it a part of a film soundtrack mm-hmm. to set the, set the mood? Or is it experimentation for its own sake? And I think that, uh, what, what do you do to the synthesizer music? Well, um, when I first uh, started listening to synthesizer music, um, I just enjoyed uh, kind of imagining stories that would go along with it, often with a sci-fi kind of uh, flavor to them. So I think it was a good... Uh, tool for just uh, exploring the mind, so to speak, in a non-chemical, or at least non-chemically induced from taking anything sense, just in a sense of... That's, that's too too easy. That mm. A lot of people just say, man, I just want to get high and listen to music mm-hmm. and give me the best stuff you got for that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so I would say it's a... But I also, if it gets you to listen to it, okay, fine. Yeah, you know, and then more directly uh, referencing that, I think it's uh, okay if, if it brought you to the step and then you ended up actually appreciating what's been done with electronic music. But I, I was saying it was a definitely when I was younger, when other people were more involved with uh, the illicitness of uh, other activities, I found it a great uh, refuge and alternative to doing that sort of thing. All right, cool. So- mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people would say, I would never listen to that unless I was high. Right. You could even be, this is this is my natural high. Yeah. I'm going to say no to drugs and say yes to weird music. Yeah, I think that uh, that essentially was where I was. This was It was so uh, different from anything else that was available to me. It was uh, only uh, something that I could get uh, on a very rare basis in the place where I grew up. So it was uh, it was special at that time. Uh, now it's 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 kind of everywhere, so it's kind of hard to uh, sort through what's better or worse or what would be something I want to listen to. So that's more of my challenge now is filtering out all the noise. But uh, back at that time in my life, it was just yeah, it was the best because there was nothing like it, and it allowed me to explore. Yeah. If you have a sheltered upbringing, anything mm-hmm. that gets you out of your box is going to be fascinating, at least for a little while. And I think the, the challenge now, as you say, is that music is really everywhere. It's accessible, and nothing nothing has to be obscure, but a lot of things still are, and that no one will ever have heard of it or hear it. Right. And uh, some of the obscurity is uh, warranted, too. I think... Uh, some of the obscurity is the obfuscation of uh, you know stuff that you would want to listen to. So I think that the temptation could be just to use uh, the available sources and streaming services to find. So I feel really fortunate uh, in some ways to have come across some artists on YouTube. I give credit to the algorithm sometimes when I come across things that uh, still seem uh, can take me back to that feeling of when I was younger. Like this is special. This is for me. Not so many people have seen this, and it's actually good, as opposed to someone off nowhere doing you know what I would essentially be doing myself with the equipment which is not not too impressive as of now <laughs> okay well I think that uh, you know first of all the, my, my initial reaction to that is great that you're finding new things but you gotta get off of YouTube it's just not, not a good way to know support artists no no it isn't um yeah so so yeah exactly and that was uh, the only way i can and that's what i try to do and i guess uh i don't think patreon is actually the greatest either <laughs> even though that seems to be how everyone supports themselves on youtube go find me go mm. go fix the music industry another day another day one more thing before i get into my pick on, okay uh, just to be dismissive and uh, disparaging of synthesizers and electronic music. Mm. We talked about microtonality and what a high concept that is. And when Ms. Catherine on her TED Talk played the, the siren, what uh, what came to mind, unfortunately, is other ways to achieve liminal pitches between mm. what we normally think of as uh, steps and half steps, those basic terms. Isn't that just using a pitch bending wheel and saying, look at me, I've got these fancy things which I could, you know, anybody could achieve by just turning the wheel on a synthesizer and making it go slightly up or slightly down. So the, the uh, I guess, yeah, in some ways, yes. However, um, and what I've seen more with uh, the instruments used to create microtonal and polychromatic music and how it differentiates itself from some of the other music that uh, uses the uh, microtonality as just kind of a bridge or a transition is that the pitch wheel, you can really only affect one note at a time or or a whole set of notes at the same time. There's no individual changing of each note. There's not a lot of dialing in and different combinations you can do with that. It's extremely limiting, I would say, and goes into kind of our previous conversation of instruments and controllers. 
uh, pitch bending wheel, I would say, falls more into a controller type situation rather than an instrument type situation. Yeah. Oh, it's part of an instrument. It's part of an instrument, but uh, you can go back through a recording and then add your pitch bending as part of a control is, is kind of how I would see it. And as far as expressiveness goes, I think it's fairly limiting. Sure, sure. Yeah. But it's easy. It's it's easy to to get an effect. I think uh, using the pitch bending wheel in a in a again, personal taste is is really coming through here. I don't like almost all the time I hear a pitch bending wheel being used. I just I I'm not a fan most of the time. But sometimes I can say okay that I can kind of see what you're doing here. But now that other instruments, uh, for example, uh, the one that we had talked about that she had introduced in her studio um the the seaboard the rolly seaboard the the pitch bending in that is is far more satisfactory and natural sounding to my ear than a pitch bending wheel will ever get and i think the, the subtleties of the to throw back to the theremin too mm. so mm-hmm. you know very evocative and you can do a lot more a lot more with it yeah so good for that i know all right well i think that uh, we made a comparison to uh some more experimental music that got popular in our consideration of One O Tricks Point Never. I haven't heard all of his albums, but uh, I'm impressed that even in this kind of synthesizer experimental music, there, there there are names that are, if not household names, pretty recognizable in the industry. Any thoughts on how you get to be known if you're making this kind of music? Hmm. That's uh, that is a difficult question. Um, for me, uh, if I had to take a guess of being put on the spot, it would be more uh, doing things of an extreme or perhaps uh, creating a very striking memory and then being just good enough with uh, your instrumentation and your compositional elements to have people want to share that experience with someone else. I think starting from being unknown at all there there is a always a need to to make a strong impression whether or not it is accomplishing your ends artistically it seems to be necessary in order to get people's attention some some level of extremeness well, I think you're I think you're coming at this question from mm. outside the industry which is a different mm. perspective that I have at least okay in terms of being connected to who is providing all of the the new music to, for example, college radio stations. I see. And that's the gatekeeper of the industry. That okay. Is. And what uh, Ms. Catherino does not apparently have is mm. the record label behind her. No. And that, I think, is, is the key to why 10 Tricks Point Never is popular and why anyone would have come across my pick for today is that I think uh, 10 Tricks Point Never is, I believe, on Warp, which is mm. you know, pretty well-regarded as an electronic music label, okay. um, both commercially and artistically. And, and even even for Chrome Canyon, which I'm going to transition to now, they're on okay. Stone's Throw, which is, you know, mostly, I, I think, a hip-hop label, actually. Interesting. It really stands out among the catalog. Yeah, I would say. Also pretty reputable. Mm. So let's, let's, let's move into Chrome Canyon. Very good. And the album, my pick for this episode, is entitled Elemental Themes. It came on 2012, has 13 tracks, and is just under an hour long at 53 minutes. As I mentioned, it's on Stone's Throw, and it is almost entirely instrumental. Uh, uh, pretty obscure in terms of all music guide user ratings. Only about 23 people have commented on it in terms of how many stars it should get. 
it's rated four stars there. And uh, my first question for, for you, after hmm. having listened to it, how many times? I'd say uh, three times, and uh, maybe one or two of those times were not all the way through, so some of them might have been split. Okay, so my second question then is, I would I would say this is this is still a fairly experimental album. Okay. I wonder if you you disagree with that. Um, I would have a hard time calling it experimental. But uh, again, I'm open to hearing why you consider it as such. Uh, For me, I just think that uh, although some of the instruments you don't often hear together, I think, yeah, compositionally, it it seems very familiar. Okay, okay. Um, Would you say that you're agreeing then with Miss Catherino that in terms of composition in regular melodies and Mm -hmm. harmonies and so forth, there's really not a lot of new ground to cover. Um, I, I think that yeah, it's it's very difficult. It really just it depends. It, it depends on uh, what you've listened to over the years, and uh, I guess your ear. Um, certain melodies or harmonies that you've heard uh, in one uh, manner or another, if you hear it in another piece of music, it's it's very distracting for me to to listen to that track again without being like oh this is the part that sounds like this or i really like this track except for when i lose uh, sight of you know the part that sounds like this other artist that i enjoyed for a while so it, it makes you almost dismissive of it and not not a fair way because again i really did enjoy this album i thought it was uh you know very professionally done like very good rhythms as far as uh getting things very syncopated and everything just sounds uh like it has a lot of energy and you know very lively kind of stuff so i I really wanted to like it more because it was so well done but because i i had experiences where oh it kind of sounds like this or that that it it kind of took me out of it okay interesting Hmm. well i I would to to stick with the experimental or not question i would say that uh the the work with the i think there's mostly if not all live drums in it and i think Hmm. the combination with that and the synthesizer and there's a a very lonely saxophone track Hmm. um one of them, I can't remember which one it's called. And I, I would say that that in itself is unusual, as you say. Okay. But does unusual mean experimental? I guess I could I could see it maybe not being, but I still find that compared to a conventional album, first of all, yeah. that, how, how do you how do you categorize mm-hmm. an album that is mostly instrumental, where there is almost no singing? I think simply by not having a singer singing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, on a pop music album, I would consider that agreed. You have to file it in experimental. Then. I agreed, and uh, it for that for that to you, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that uh, it doesn't follow that paradigm, so it, it kind of puts it already just from that uh, fact that it's instrumental and it's in a category much smaller. But uh, it is a scale, so if I shorten the the scale the uh yeah i guess the spectrum down to within instrumental music then it's definitely not very experimental of instrumental music perhaps all right but if you if you consider the category instrumental music itself has to be not pop music Mm -hmm. because pop music has singing Mm -hmm. 
then maybe you could see it. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, a, that's a fair fair consideration. You, you said you, you wanted to like it more, but you, you did like it? I did enjoy it, yeah. I think, again, uh, and to the point where um, I'm hopefully going to uh, go beyond the YouTube and actually support this artist uh, in the best way possible. And again, I'm still finding uh, which sources are best to give the most back to the, the performer. The best you can do is go to the concert and buy the merch. Right. You know, right. Hand. Indeed. Indeed. Second to that is probably Bandcamp. That's a, something I, I spend a lot of time on on Reddit debating what the best way to support the obscure artist is. Yeah, and I just started uh, using Bandcamp, so I will probably continue to do so. Yeah, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who makes music, which I don't know. I was asking him, too, what's the best way to support it, and he said simply to um, let other people know about their music. So I think and the very fact that we're talking about it is, is doing a service, hopefully, to um, the artists. Sure. I think that's it's a, a two-front war that I, I've called it in, uh, in other conversations and other forums for the uh, for the obscure artist and that you're, you're not going to make any money if you give your music to the streaming uh, platforms because the payout is extremely small unless you're getting a million a million plays, which an obscure artist is never going to get. Mm-hmm. But you're also don't want to discount the value of exposure, which you know it, in the past you would never have been able to hear so much music that you're now able to, to to hear. So you're trying to both get exposure, as you mentioned, get people talking about it for word of mouth, which I think is still the best or most uh, reliable way to get people mm-hmm. to listen to new music. Yeah. But, you're, but at the same time, you'd, you'd like to see some compensation at some point. Right, which is, right. It's, it's going to be an uphill battle, two for a war, mm-hmm. as I called it. Here's some, some fun facts before I get into actual reviews. Uh, there are two reviews of this album I want to talk about. Okay. You saw on Pitchfork and AMG. Okay. Um, if not, I'll just quote them and you can comment. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, overall, I found the, the melody is very engaging. And mm-hmm. uh, certainly, the I, I mentioned uh, the incorporation of more organic and acoustic instruments is unusual. I think even for uh, a group like uh, Tangerine Dream and uh, Osric Tentacles, the predecessors to this album in, the, in terms of sound they didn't uh, i don't think they did it as well okay as, as on this album in terms of especially the drums especially mm. on the most synthesizer in electronic music it's very rare to have live drums on uh, the background of the track so i found the, the rhythm and the melody going very well together i think it's uh despite being all in it's almost all instrumental it has it has the drama it has the the, the heft behind mm-hmm. it. Oomph, you could say yeah of, heavy metal let's say yeah and i, I have seen yeah too where, where you're introducing acoustic drums there's a there can be a tendency to just drown everything else out i think that was uh, well balanced enough i think it did suit itself as a, as a backbone to the to the tracks do you feel a drama a pull mm. to the music mm-hmm. i mean it's easy to go the other way and just say it's cheesy cheesy synthesizers <laughs> cheesy keyboards yeah, I, I think that it's a fine line always, again, from for reasons that we discussed and why people don't like uh, synthesizer music. But uh, again, I think that uh, this one balanced it out well enough where there may be a moment where you're like, well, I hope they don't, you know, or they better not. And they, they end up doing just fine. Yeah, there were there were chances. There were there were pauses or moments where it's like, OK, this could uh, really suck here. I hope it doesn't. And it didn't. So, go downhill fast. Yes, this could really go downhill fast, but it, and it did. I think it, it stayed consistent uh, throughout my listening. Um, there was never a point after the the second listen where I was like, 
all of those concerns on that first listen were just gone and I could just in, enjoy the album. So I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a tension. There's a tension. You know it could go down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. And I think with the comparison with uh, with heavy metal that I'm trying to make, both mm. uh, serious, quote-unquote, synthesizer music and overly serious heavy metal, they both can get caught in their own hubris mm-hmm. and be ripe for ridicule, like being made fun of, you know? Like, yes. Oh my gosh, this is so cheesy, right? Right. So I think... Uh, I don't think I don't think this goes quite that far into that territory, but I could imagine that some people could hear it that way. Yeah, and again, and, uh, di- different uh, threshold for different people. I think uh, there are definitely some out there that would say, "Okay, yes, it did cross that line." <laughs> I think, in terms of nostalgia, for some mm. age groups, they don't have any nostalgia at all for this. There was okay. only the cheesy, da- cheesy bad stuff. Maybe. And say our say our parents' generation, maybe I would play this for them. Okay. Expect them to like it. And not for everybody, I guess. And uh, yeah, the guy the guy stands out like a sore thumb on on mm. the hip hop label Stone's Throw. He's basically he he looks like Owen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On a hip hop label, that's gonna that's not gonna be to your credit. No, probably not. Probably not. So in, in terms of other good things, in terms mm-hmm. of other good things that I, I did when I'm getting into the reviews now, the producer of this album, the producer of this album also worked with Bjork and Daft Punk. Okay. And I wonder, I wonder if you could hear any of that. So strangely enough, not Bjork, but I did have um, on the track called uh, "Branches" a distinct uh, Daft Punk feel to it. So that was on my list of sound alike, but I did not get Bjork. Um, I could probably see that some some influences are yeah effects there, but uh, Daft Punk definitely uh, came through on the track branches for me. Right on, right on. And I think uh, in terms of the the influence of the producer in terms of making all of the uh, all the track the tracks are all very pretty tight. I would say mm-hmm. there's not just. I wouldn't call any of them sprawling yeah. or abstract. It, it's very on point. Mm-hmm. It follows, uh, yeah. Just the question. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it follows along. The question and the complaint, the complaint of another reviewer is that this isn't danceable. Mm, okay. Like, this is an expectation that it's electronic music, electronic music is dance music, and that what you're supposed to do is dance to them. Yeah, I... I found that... It's kind of insulting. I found that <laughs> well, the, the review... The review that uh, I, I have two different reviews on, on Pitchfork, which is kind of I, I consider it the hipster okay. voice of the hipster. They gave it only a, a six point three out of ten, which mm. is, is basically saying they didn't like it. Wow! And uh, I'll I'll quote some of that uh, quote some of that review in a minute. Okay, and to compare that to All Music Guide, which I find usually more you know well reasoned and balanced, they gave it four stars out of five, which is yeah they they clearly liked it more. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of individual tracks, the uh, and uh, we usually talk about uh, R I Y L's. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you if you like this, you should also check this out. That wasn't very easy with Miss Catherino. Okay. But I think that uh, there's a lot that you could compare this to. And the other reviews mention mm-hmm. uh, the Pitchfork review mentions Vangelis and okay. Wendy Carlos. Have you heard of either? Of them? No, I'm not familiar with them. Uh, I don't know either, but apparently they, they both work on film soundtracks and okay. specifically sci-fi film soundtracks. Um, that makes sense, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. So, and the individual track that I wanted to point out was uh, Car Fire on the Highway. Mm. And I think it compares favorably to the work that Ayer did on the Virgin Suicide. Yeah, yeah, the, the spoken word uh, kind of part of it, certainly. Yeah, 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 
using the very low distorted voice to talk over a you know a very synthy mm-hmm. synthy track as they all are here. So if you like to, if you like air, definitely yeah. check this out. And uh, Daft Punk, I don't know. It'd be if you're expecting Daft Punk, you're going to be disappointed because as the review says, right. it's not. You're not going to dance to it. I, I would agree. You're not going to dance to it. But uh, coming from someone who does not dance, that's just fine. <laughs> oh, you got to shake it. Yeah, shake it. maybe. That's, that's what music is all about. Maybe. And, and, and to that point, though, to that point specifically, if you wanted to, um, there is a remix album of this album, which I they're both available. I didn't say where you can find this album. You don't listen to it on YouTube. Please, okay. by all means, uh, go to eMusic and buy it. Mm-hmm. Or... Uh, some other place I can't remember if it's on Bandcamp it'll be in the show notes how you can get this out All right. please buy it rather than streaming it because it's definitely a, a smaller smaller artist who's not going to see more than pennies if you stream mm-hmm. if you stream it yeah and that's you know if, if anything uh, that I would harp on even though it may not be directly related to the theme of obscure music I think it's always worth mentioning that yeah I appreciate that so there is as I wanted to say there is a remix album that I did buy to try to give some more support to the artist, and uh, I was really disappointed with it. I, I, mm. I initially wanted you to listen to the okay. next album, and then I just said, "Don't even bother." Yeah, I think I remember that. It, it, it takes it takes something unique. Mm. It takes something that has its own voice that is a showcase for the synthesizer on an album and it just turns it into an electronic dance music yeah which i guess answered the problem that that one reviewer had oh okay how do we make this addresses that Mm -hmm. but it it really turns it into something that is pretty much dime a dozen Mm -hmm. yeah i've had that happen with a lot of artists and i think uh the unfortunate thing with remix albums i think uh it's happened that way so frequently now that I think it's an expectation that when you have a remix album, they're going to dance it up. I just, I, I've come to that uh, acceptance. Yeah. The definition of remix, a remix is take this song and make it danceable. Yes. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Very unfortunate. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm much more interested in, you know, going the reverse way, but it doesn't even have to consider danceability at all. It's right. And if it be a primary consideration. Yeah, if I were to give uh, another artist uh, a chance to to remix this, are you any suggestions? I'm not saying that I would do it, but uh, those moments maybe on your first listen where you're worried that it's going to go somewhere that you don't want it to go, maybe take those as opportunities to take it somewhere where it can go somewhere else that's also good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the best remixes are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You don't know what, what exactly they're going to do. Or if uh, even the highest praise I can give is that you can take a song take a song and remix it so that you wouldn't recognize it as the same song yeah this is the same and uh, i think i think apex twin is or music are, are both very good sure taking agreed taking something and totally shredding it to pieces yeah you told them this is that song you say what and then you really have to listen mm-hmm. and maybe you could hear like one element that they took from yes it and just ran with it yes as as connecting the two two songs mm-hmm. definitely not the case for this remix album mm. oh, stick well. to the original okay what did you hear so um well just in general too i did a lot of kind of rock sounding beats uh, pressiators um 70s kind of feel to it um i got uh like a tubular bells michael oldfield kind of uh, or mike oldfield 
pardon, uh, kind of feel to it too at some point. I was like, oh yeah, I can see how that kind of fits in. Um, maybe uh, calm trues without uh, sampled beats so much. Um, maybe reminiscent of the music from the movie Labyrinth a little. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. In in the first track, I think beginnings, I heard a melody where I was like, that sounds like a passage out of Do You Hear What I Hear, the, the Christmas uh, um, song. So I didn't know, kind of, that was kind of a weird moment there. Um, lit- sci-fi version of a Christmas song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to hear Santa came on a nuclear missile and uh, rock and disco Santa Claus on the mm-hmm. song. Moves. Yeah, no, those are some of my favorites too. Yeah, the unintentional. Yeah, it, it is. Those need to come out. Uh, we just put all the Christmas decorations up over here. So, yeah, I'm waiting to hear some alternative Christmas music. Um, uh, Legends, I heard some kind of siren sounds, which kind of tied into uh, the uh, Dolores Catherino stuff. So that was kind of fun. Um, like I said before, Branches had kind of a Daft Punk. And, uh, yeah, now that you mentioned it, I did get that kind of air feeling. I couldn't quite place it, but that's definitely what it was from the Virgin Suicide on the car fire on the highway. Memories of a Scientist, I just really enjoyed the, the kind of uh, cinematic feel of that. Absolutely. This is, this is going to conjure images, if you, whether you close your eyes or not. You're, I wouldn't say it's driving music. You're going to drive off mm. the over, overpass thinking you're a spaceship, pretty much. Yeah. If you, a little distracting. A little distracting. So. <laughs> right, sure. I think another one I would add, I, I forgot to, thanks for doing the... Uh, what else you heard? I think mm. uh, Ratatat. Okay. Is, yeah. Is another one where they, a, a much slower version and obviously more nostalgic than computer dance rock. Yeah, and I and I read your show notes from before, and when I saw Ratatat on there, I really wanted to hear it. So I'm interested to hear the part that reminded you of that because I I didn't quite hear anything Ratatat. So yeah. Well, check it out. I will again. Other points. Other points. I kind of ran through the list at this point, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping to to get more out of this artist as well. Uh, see what uh, they come up with next. I can't say that I'm a fan yet. I want to I want to talk about how I, I mentioned that All Music Guide uh, liked it more than Pitchfork did, but I hmm. want to focus on what Pitchfork said about it. Okay. The the, the sentence that I want to quote most of all, they gave it again a six point three out of ten, which for them is like saying meh. Uh, pretty much, and it's definitely an acquired taste and not worth most people's time. Um, here is a quote from the review. He says that each track, highlighting either a playful wonder or a vague sense of danger, feels like setting first foot onto an alien landscape, only to reveal the most masterfully tacky soundstage imaginable. You know, I don't know what kind of what kind of, are they saying? Is they they saying they like it there or they don't like it? It's definitely of a piece it is of a of a scene hmm. what, what how would you interpret that um, just i suppose i i would uh, take it from well first of all going from a human standpoint that person must not have been having a very good day <laughs> Unfortunately, um, the context for listening, I think, first of all, makes a big difference, which is why I try to listen to albums. And as you suggest, at least more than once, because uh, context makes a huge difference um, for my interpretation of the actual uh, content of what he's saying. It, it sounds like he's saying they, they threw a lot of stuff in there for the sake of like, what do we have in this studio? OK, we have this. Let's put it on the track. OK. Interesting. And they, they, the sentence before that, another one that I would not compare to, because 
the very epitome of cheesy synthesizer music, Mannheim Steamroller. Mm -hmm. is, uh, they call it their, their synthetic grandiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can hear that, but I wouldn't want to make any, any direct comparisons because I think that is just too cheesy. Yeah, yeah. Other things that they mention in this album, basically they say this album is just for geeks and that the average person will find nothing to enjoy. And they say, to those not in possession of a 12-sided die, this probably doesn't sound terribly appealing. Hmm. And uh, I, so he's, he's deliberately targeting the fantasy people uh -huh. who are watching Crawl and Life. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I did not, and I also do not own a 12-sided die. I've never played Dungeons & Dragons uh -huh. and that stuff. Okay. So, I mean, would you recommend it? Would you recommend it specifically for that crowd? Sure. That crowd? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's some appeal there. Uh, if I can speak for some of them, um, again, not a big Dungeons and Dragons guy, but it, uh, definitely the fantasy uh, genre in general. I have some traction there. Yeah, I think there would be some elements uh, certainly. And and when I. <laughs> When I watched Kroll the first time, <laughs> to be fair, I thought it wasn't too bad. But when I watched it the second time, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to agree on everything. Mm -hmm. yeah, some things stand up to repeated uh, repeated consumption and some things do not. Yeah. Well, and I, my first sign, if I can just talk about that for a moment, should have been that uh, in, in the video store, they had copies of the movie piled up to the ceiling. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really liked that movie. But why is there a pile of it? <laughs> that should have been my sign. Yeah, memories, memories of, of scientists is one of the tracks on here. We got memories from childhood. Mm. Maybe things not, not being as good as we remember them. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, I think maybe I'll put this album down, listen to it uh, a little. And that's one of my favorite things to do sometimes is really to just throw something like this in my music library, wait for it to come up after a while and see if I still enjoy it. So I guess that's, I guess will be the long-term test, but uh, from, from a few listens over the past uh, month, yeah, definitely enjoyed it. Great, good. I agree with you that uh, sometimes you need to leave something alone for a while and some things are best left in childhood nostalgia, but I mm. think this is something that as long as I don't, you know, listen to it 50 million times a day, I'll mm. always be happy to come back to it. And uh, in fact, I did listen to it like four or five times as we anticipated recording this episode. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for hanging in there. Oh, no. It's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to talk to you about it. So okay. I think it's time to, to give our ratings. All right. And, uh, say when the, when the when push comes to shove, how much did you actually like it? So uh, composition uh, would be the first category, again, out of the five. Um, is this piece, are the pieces on this album enjoyable or at least interesting? I think it satisfies both enjoyable and listening um, with, with uh, pretty much ease there. Um, musicianship, I uh, think this is really where the uh, album shines most, is musicianship. Just really impressive, um, I think, the way that it was performed and put together um, in a professional manner. Um, recording quality, um, yeah. Again, no no issues there. And again, it's hard to even put uh, recording quality on my rating system sometimes. I, I put it on there to kind of weed out maybe the homebrew stuff a little bit more. Um, just because sometimes I, I, I can't, I, I don't want to 
rate a song that doesn't pass a basic recording quality test. So we'll just go over that one real quick. Um, a mix, well produced. Yeah, I think everything uh, sat well in the mix. There wasn't anything like the, the bass didn't make my, you know, eardrums melt out and, you know, the highs weren't making me want to cry. I think everything was mixed down really well and balanced well in the mix. The style, is it art? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I can really get a good feel for it. And again, maybe I fall into that uh, disparaging sci-fi fantasy realm a little bit too much and that might be the appeal there, but oh well. It happens. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be blamed for it. Just, you know, go with it if you feel it. I say, I say go with it. So it, it passes on every uh, scale, so I would say that's uh, definitely some of the top music that I would enjoy is, is this kind of thing. So, right. so thumbs up. Glad, glad to hear. Mm -hmm. Glad to hear you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, for myself, I gave it a 9 out of 10. Okay. I think about it for a while. It's not obviously groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely not new, but it, right. uh, that's not the point here. I no, I don't think The point is that. to you know, do things in terms of production that sound very uh, indebted and, uh, you know, tipping the hat to what's come before. But uh, it uh, really does everything so much better, I think, than A Tangerine Dream or An Osric Tentacles. And maybe I'll have to listen to it in 20 years again and say that again and decide whether I was too kind here. But uh, it's already using analog instruments and old synthesizers, so how much more dated is it going to sound? Mm. I'm guessing it's mm. able to age better then than anything that's come before. Mm -hmm. And so overall, I found it you know, really uh, something I, I like listening to in any, any situation, whether it's if you're talking about, I, I think you could dance to it if you try it in some of the tracks. Mm. And certainly the dances would maybe not be conventional, but then again, this is not a conventional album. No. And uh, yeah, you could. I could read to it. I could brainstorm. I know that yes. certain members of uh, my family I don't know about your family mm, AA, mm, mm, but uh, are, I certainly have an uncle who likes to listen to uh, space music in his laboratory uh -huh. to inspire him to, to think deep thoughts and uh, outside of the box in general yeah, yeah. this would be one of those albums so really any situation the question of what you do to this kind of music is is always superseded by just how enjoyable it is to listen to mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't appeal to you, that's I, that's on you. Oh, I, one more thing: okay. for for a rating of nine, I want to say that the album, the album aspect of it, since we are comparing to one who has eschewed or maybe transcended mm -hmm. the packaging of music into an album, I think this very much is a cohesive album. Where if I only listen to one or two tracks, I feel un, unfinished. I feel like I need to listen to the rest to complete the journey. It's a good point. Yeah, no, and and that's not something that I have in my rating system. Maybe I need to uh, to add that in. Is is how well as a, as a piece as an album does it fit together? So yeah, I'm glad that you touched on that and uh, kind of buttress along in one of your points too. I think uh, yeah, there's so many different activities that you could do to this music. Um, it's not to the point where I feel like the music would take you away from any of the experiences that you would have. It would certainly be an enhancing sort of effect. All right. Well, cool. This has been a lot of fun, Double A. Thanks All right. for joining me. You're welcome, DJ Pizzura. So I hope we can do this again. Uh, I don't know when. But, uh, yeah, this was enjoyable. Um, I'm not going to envy the editing, but uh, <laughs> have fun with that. Oh, I think we'll be fine. This is great. So uh, thanks for tuning in and to Out of Obscurity. And uh, broaden your horizons, everybody. Have a good night. Yep. Good day. Good day.